Romans chapter 3. Title tonight's message, A Declaration of Dependence, not Independence. Hopefully it'll make sense by the time we get through tonight. But as a way of review, as, as, as a way of review, look at your introduction. We've come to a startling realization so far in our study of the book of Romans. If all the Gentiles are under sin in chapter 1, we covered that two weeks ago, and remind me again, what is a Gentile? Anybody, not a Jew. Anybody who's not Jewish. Very simple. Two people groups in the world. If all the Gentiles are under sin in chapter 1, we looked at that two weeks ago, and all the Jews are under sin in chapter 2, then by default, the entire world is all under sin. And you might be thinking, well, that's not really a startling realization, Corey. It should be. If you've been paying attention the last two weeks and you realize the gravity of what God's Word has said in the last two chapters, it should be a startling realization to you that the entire world and everyone there in it is all under sin. That's the case Paul makes for the first two-thirds of chapter 3. Now, as Paul is making his doctrinal dissertation into the righteousness of God, and that's what we, we titled this series, God's Playbook for Righteousness, because that is the theme of the entire book of Romans. How to be right with God. What does that look like? As he's making his doctrinal dissertation into the righteousness of God, it would appear as though he's taking his own advice of having all preaching be two-thirds negative and one-third positive. You guys look at 2 Timothy 4 too. Anybody know what that verse says, by the way? It's a monarch of a verse. One of Paul's last words. He says, preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. In other words, when it's not popular to carry your Bible to school, you carry it like it's popular. When it's not popular to talk to your friends about Christ, you talk to them like it is popular. And then he says, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. You want to preach the Bible? You want to preach the Word of God? You want to live your life for Christ? Two-thirds negative. Reprove, rebuke. And then the last part is exhort. We've come through two depressing chapters so far. Has it not been? It's been dreary. It's been heavy. And as we start chapter 3, it's going to be more of the same. But we're coming to some good news by the end of tonight. It'll be a lot less heavy when we get to the end of chapter 3. So as we approach the end of the first quarter of our study in Romans, back on your outline, righteousness will be revealed clearer than it has ever been so far in our series. Point number one on your outline. What we see with the first 20 verses of chapter 3 is that judgment is coming for the unrighteousness of the whole world. And again, that's not me. You can go back and listen. We have our podcast. You can listen to the last two weeks' messages where it talks about how God... Because He is holy, because He is just, He cannot allow sin to just go unjudged. He's the judge of all the earth, the book of Genesis calls Him, the book of beginnings. He's the judge of all the earth. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Can you imagine if somebody wronged you criminally? Fill in the blank. Robbed you. Killed someone you loved. Stole from you. All right, that's the same thing as robbed. <laughs> Burgled you. Burgled you. <laughs> Can you imagine if somebody did that? And the judge whom you're standing before just lets the guy go. Can you imagine that? How would that make you feel? Yeah. Now think about it. Think about all the criminality that has gone on in the world since time immemorial. Would God be a good and a righteous God if he just let it go? If he was Elsa? Makes no sense. That doesn't happen here with sinful judges, with imperfect judges. So why would a perfect God do that? The perfect judge. So judgment is coming for the unrighteousness of the whole world. Letter A, we got some questions to ponder. So as we saw last week, chapter 2 was all about the Jews being under sin. And again... Chapter 1 is the Gentiles. But he continues in chapter 3, verse 1, by pondering some questions with where he left off in chapter 2. Follow along with me in verse 1. He asks, Man, if, if the Jews are all under sin, what advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way is his answer. Well, how do you figure that? He gives you the answer. Keep reading. Chiefly, because that unto them, unto who? Who's the them that we're talking about here? It's not a trick question. Yes, the Jews. 
unto them were committed the oracles of God. Now, that word or that phrase there, oracles of God, it's just another phrase that means the word of God. You realize that we have the entire Old Testament preserved today because of the faithfulness of God's people, the nation of Israel? Because of the faithfulness of what the Jewish priests and the Levites and the scribes and how they took painstaking measures to make sure that the Old Testament was preserved without error? Everything in their power. You guys should check this out. I mean, we study this in the Bible Institute. If any of you guys want to go into the Bible Institute one day, you will study this out. But you look at the Old Testament Levites, and when they were writing out a copy of God's Word, whenever they came to the word Jehovah, now Jehovah, it is the all-encompassing name for God. It is the most holiest of names for God. And that name was so holy that whenever a Jew came to that, that name, that title of God in the Bible, they had to put down the pen, they had to disrobe themselves, they had to go and cleanse themselves seven times, come back, put on brand new clothes, grab a brand new pen that had never been used before, and then write the name of Jehovah out. And then the very next time they came to the word Jehovah, doesn't matter if it was within the same day, within the same hour, they had to do it all over again. Because of the holiness and the reverence of that name and the holiness and the reverence and the painstaking measures they took to make sure that everything was perfect in the translation and in the writings down of the Word of God. To the point that, you know what, there's a lot of debate in Christian circles today that, man, does the New Testament, should it be from this manuscript? Or what about what this version of the Bible says? Or what about that manuscript? There's a lot of debate considering that. But do you realize that there's not a whole lot of debate about the Old Testament? Because of what we just read there in verse 2. They were committed to the oracles or to the Word of God. They kept it. They preserved it. They made sure that it didn't get into the wrong hands where anybody could change this here or change that there. They were very, very articulate and diligent with it. They had that much care for it. Verse 3. Okay, so that's good. We have the Old Testament because of them. But what if, Paul goes on, some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? What does he say in verse 4? God forbid. God forbid. Don't miss these next words. Yea, let God be true, but every man a what? A liar. Well, how do you know what is true? He follows that up in the very next words. As it is written that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. Back on your outline. Some questions to ponder. We just read the first four verses of chapter 3, and we're seeing that, man, even though all of Jerusalem, all of the Jewish people, they are under the curse of sin, we see in point number one on your outline, God's word and work is not hindered by the hypocrisy of man. God is going to accomplish His plans and His purposes for mankind regardless of what we flawed human sinners are going to do. He's going to accomplish it one way or the other. So let God be true and every man a liar up here on the screen. 2 Timothy 2.9 2, says, Paul's again speaking, he says, Where I suffer, Wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even unto bonds... Now don't miss this last part. But the Word of God is not bound. He's in bonds here, Paul is. He's literally writing this letter from a prison cell, and he is bound in chains. And even though he's bound in chains, you know what he says? God's Word is not bound. In other words, there's no limitations on what God's Word can do in the heart of a human being who is listening and receptive to what God wants to say to them. No limitations. No boundaries. There's no stopping God's Word from going coast to coast to every corner of this planet if someone wants it and if someone is willing to send themselves to say, Here I am, Lord, send me. I'll go to the ends of the hallway to talk to that person about Christ. I will go and bring my Bible to school and I will be the one to answer 
in class when my teacher says something that goes against what the Bible says. I'll be that missionary. I'll be that person that takes my faith to the end of the, the planet. I'll take this book to the end of the planet because God's word is not bound. And he continues, Titus 1-2, in hope of eternal life. That's what we're going to be talking about tonight. Which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. Yeah, let God be true and every man a liar because God can't lie. And how do we know he can't lie? Well, he speaks to us through his words and his words aren't bound. And he's proven time and time again that this book is infallible. It is incorruptible. This is the only perfect thing that you have on this planet right now. You realize that? Everything that's on this planet has been man-made and fabricated by sinful man, imperfect man. God used sinful man to write this passage. We're studying this out on Sunday mornings too. That in 2 Peter chapter 1, it talks about that holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit because God breathed into them the breath of life. God inspired them and told them what to write down in this book. And then he went into protection mode. He went into preservation mode to make sure that no one monkeyed around with his words. People did monkey around with his words. People did change and alter things here and there. But God promised that even though people would do that, He's always going to have a copy of His words unaltered somewhere in the planet. So that we can know without any assurance of doubt that what we have is the Word of God and that He's not going to lie to us. We can go to Him for truth, even though man is a liar, even though we are liars. He's not going to be hindered by the hypocrisy of man. He's going to get the job done. Point number two. Not only that, but we also see that God is righteous and true, independent of our unrighteousness and lies. In other words, it's not dependent upon you and I to be holy and righteous in order for Him to be holy and righteous. We're going to see that here. Verse 5. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. Once again, he says, God forbid... For then, how shall God judge the world? He's asking questions here to get you to think. Verse 7, For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto His glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? And not rather, as we be slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. Here's what he's saying here. He's telling them, does our wickedness show off His goodness? And look again at verse 5. If our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? He's saying, does the more wicked that I am, does it show just how good He is because of how holy He is? If God knows that I'm no good, is He wrong to take vengeance on me? You get into some of these philosophical arguments with some people at school? I used to all the time in college. People who got very, very philosophical, who tried to ask you a question just to try to flip you on your head to make you think, man, I don't really know what I believe. There are people that are like this all the time. They'll ask questions like, is God, is God so powerful and all-knowing that He's able to create a rock that He can't lift? People will ask questions like that to try to trip you up. That's the same thing here. Why would God, if He's so righteous... Create man who is unrighteous. Why not let me live like the devil if it's just going to make him look better? We're going to talk about this in two weeks to come also. Because there's some Christians who live their life today who think, man, I've been forgiven of all of my sins, so I might as well just have fun and do whatever I want. Because I'm going to heaven at the end of the road. And he says the exact same thing to those Christians as he's saying here to lost mankind. God forbid. You know what? God's goodness is not revealed more the more unrighteous we do. No. God is righteousness personified. God is righteous in his very character, in his very being. He is righteousness personified. He must judge the world for sin. And that's what Paul is telling us here. He's righteous and true, independent of our unrighteousness. And it's the same thing with verses 7 and 8 about truth. Uh, you know, the truth of God have more bounded through my lie. Are we just going to make God's word more truer? <laughs> if that was even a word. Are we just going to make God's word more, more truthful the more that we lie? No. We're going to be sinners regardless of whatever contrast we put up against it. 
Because at the end of the day, letter B is true. No one, no one, no one, no one can escape the fact that we all are born under sin. I know it seems like I'm hammering this, and there's going to be a lot of scripture passages we're going to put on the screen tonight, but I'm telling you guys, we got to get through the bad before we get to the good. This is the theme of this entire chapter that Paul is making. Again, Paul is wanting to set the stage of all of Christian doctrine. You can't get to the righteousness of God until you realize how unrighteous mankind is. If all the Gentiles of chapter 1 are under sin and all the Jews of chapter 2 are under sin, that means in chapter 3 we have all of the world is under sin. No one is righteous. Pay attention to how many negative no's and nuns show up in the next few verses. Can I get a reader for verses 9 to 12? Caitlin. What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way, they are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. No, no, none, no, not, none, 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 no, not. In those four verses, ten times you have that many negative words. No, not, and none. You think he's trying to make a point here? No, no. Plus, the Bible's all metaphorical anyways. Some people actually believe that. No, not one is righteous. That means no, not one person is righteous on their own. We're going to prove that here in just a little bit. All the world on your outline there, the first bullet point, all the world is unrighteous. 1 Peter 1.16 up on the screen says, Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. We've covered this before in this class. Anybody tell me what is a simple definition for the word holy? There's actually a couple words you could use. Perfect. Unflawed, yeah. Sinless. What was that? Who said that? Sinless. Sinless. Wow, Andy, your ventriloquist through your voice. Pure. Pure. And purity implies cleanliness. Clean. Be ye clean, for I am clean. Well, that's just the problem with that. Psalm 14.3 says that they are all gone aside. They are all together become what? Filthy. That's the Bible, not me. There is, oh, this sounds familiar, none that doeth good, no, not one. That's the verse that Paul's quoting here. Psalm 14.3. And he equates it with being filthy. And filthiness is equated with being unholy. The requirement, unfortunately, is holiness. He continues, Job 14.4, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? What's the answer? Not one. Not one. And if Job 15.14, what is man that he should be clean? Translation, holy, perfect, unflawed, pure. And he which is born of a woman that he should be righteous. Well, there's your answer. Hey, anyone here not born of a woman? I'll give time. Person. That's all. <laughs> That's all of us. We're gonna follow like rules of Macbeth, or like C-sections is not considered. What? Yeah. It's oh like no! Get out of here, Shakespeare. Still being born of a woman. Yeah. Still to come out of her body. Don't trust Shakespeare. So all the world is unrighteous because there's not one person clean, not one person pure. Again, we may get that. Your friends at school will get that. It won't take long to convince them as we're going to see here in a little bit. But the problem is, what did 1 Peter 1.16 say? What's going on? Because it is written, 
Let God be true and every man a liar. We just read that. Be ye holy, for I am holy. Yeah, New Testament verse, but he's quoting the book of Leviticus where God himself is speaking. The requirement for all of mankind to get into heaven is holiness, is perfection, is showing up unflawed, is showing up pure, is showing up clean. If you want to be in heaven, that is the standard. All the world is unrighteous, we saw. Not only that, but in verse 11, we saw that all of the world is unreasonable. Your second bullet point. Unreasonable. Why do you say that? Well, he says in verse 11, there's none that understandeth. You understand where? In your foot? Oh, in your mind. Thank you. In your head, in your mind, there's none that understandeth. Did you just fist bump him for that? Yeah. <laughs> there is none that seeketh after God. Gets one right. God forbid. So we just saw Psalm 14.3. We just saw Psalm 14.3 where he talks about no, not one righteous. Here's the verse right before that. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there was any that did understand and seek God. And we just got the answer in verse 3. No, they're not. They don't understand. They're not willing to reason. They're not willing to listen to reason from truth. Let God be true and every man a liar. Just read that in verse 4. That includes me, by the way. So don't believe a word I'm saying. Believe what this says. That's why there's going to be a ton of verses up here tonight. Romans 1.28. You guys remember this one from two weeks ago? And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind, a corrupted mind, to do those things which are not convenient. I said it before then. I said it at the Northwest Bible study last week. I'll say it again tonight. If you hear things tonight from God's Word, and you are not willing to stand under the authority of what God's Word says, and to change your reasoning to match the reasoning of God's Word, you are playing with fire in more ways than one, according to that verse we just read. When you try to forget God, you don't like to retain the things that are said tonight, God gives you over. God just gives you over to whatever you want to do. And you're going to be further and further from understanding the truth of God. You're going to be even more unreasonable. And not only that, but the third bullet point, all the world is unrepentant. Man. The three use. Isaiah 53.6 All we That means you and me. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. You know the word repent? Anybody tell me what that word actually means? What a definition of it is, very simply? Uh, to like turn away and not go back. Perfect! It means you stop the way you are going because you're understanding, you're reasoning, and you turn... He just fist bumped him, didn't he? <laughs> you turn and go the opposite direction of where you were going. In other words, you're not going your own way. But all we like sheep have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Because we've all gone our way, there's a price to be paid for that. Again, we'll see that in two weeks' time in chapter 6, verse 23, but some of you already have that verse memorized. Man. You know what? It's kind of funny. Declaration of Dependence, a play on the words of Declaration of Independence, which was written before what war got started. Let's see if he gets this right. <laughs> I got to ask these days. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> Three, three for three. He's got a perfect game tonight. But you know what? Oh my goodness. Alright, let's bring it back in. Let's bring it back in. Let's bring it back in. Do you guys not know what bring it back in means? Alright, good. But you know what? 
Each and every single one of us are rebels. We're all rebelling against the authority of God. We're all rebelling against the truth of God, fighting our own revolution. It's our way. Don't get me wrong. Glad we had some guys rebel against uh, an authoritarian government and gave us the freedoms that we have today. But in this sense, this is not a good independent streak for us. We need to turn from our own way and listen to reason, stand under the authority of God. And we need to come to the conclusion that, you know what? I'm going to trust what God says, and I'm going to reckon myself as a liar. Let God be true, and every man a liar. Point two. And we see that as a result of this, all the world has become criminal in thought, word, and deed. I need a reader for verses 13 to 18. Andy. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Their lips, things that they say, full of poison. An asp is a, is a poisonous snake. I'm telling you guys, the words that you speak, whether verbally or in text form, could just absolutely kill someone else's character. You can kill someone else's relationship. You can kill somebody else's who they are as a person. It's deadly. Bible says in James 3 that your tongue, if not careful, can be set on fire with hell itself. It likens it to on a ship. You know, you have just this little, this little uh, wheel, this little steering wheel. This tiny little wheel in comparison to this big ship, it has the power to completely turn the course of a ship any way that you want to. This tiny little thing. And the Bible likens the tongue to that steering wheel. Completely driving the Titanic right into an iceberg. Their words in their throat. Their feet. Talking about their actions now. Swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. I know a lot of miserable people because of the choice and the actions they've made. Do you? You see them in the hallways. You've heard the stories that your friends have shared, whether true or not true about that person. You know how miserable they are because it's all over their face. They are miserable because of what things that they have done or because of the people and the friends that they've gotten themselves into that they've, again, they shared it as true or as gossip. Stinks. And the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear before God. Their thoughts. I don't know about you guys, but someone whose mind is always racing, someone whose thoughts are constantly attacking them, someone whose thoughts are just always on wickedness constantly, there's no peace for that person. There's no peace, saith the Lord, to the wicked. That's what Isaiah says. So in point number two, we see that the or sorry, point number three, the law of God written on our hearts, it silences all attempts to plead our case of innocence. We know this. We hammered this last week in chapter 2, but look at verse 19. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law. And we just saw that what Paul is making the case here for chapter 3, the entire world is under the law. And what does the law do? It stops every mouth and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, verse 20, by the deeds of the law, doing the Ten Commandments. Hey, I didn't kill anybody. I'm good. Hey, I don't lie that much. I'm good. Well, I certainly don't make any other gods before, you know, the big man upstairs, as I like to call him. You sure about that? By the deeds of the law, doing good, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. Why? And look how he ends it. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. That's the entire point thereof. The law of God written on our hearts silences all attempts to plead our case of innocence. I mentioned this last week. Just go through the Ten Commandments with a friend at school. It's not going to be that hard. Those of you guys who have been at Harvest Evangelism Ministry events that we've had, you've gone through it. Those of you who have passed out tracts at the mall, you've been through it. 
Is it really that hard? Can you really stumble through that? You just know three of the Ten Commandments, you'll be able to present that to somebody else and ask them, have you violated this commandment? Have you told a lie? Have you stolen anything? Answers off of a test. Have you had anger or lust inside of you towards someone else? Bible says, according to Christ, that's as equal with murder and adultery. Because again, as we just saw, it's not just the actual deeds itself, it's the thoughts. You go through that, no one is going to be able to say, well, no, because no one is going to have an out. It is very, very simple to go through the Ten Commandments with somebody and watch as they stand silent because they have no defense. And as I just went through those commandments that right there, what four did I mention? How have you done with those? Guilty. In all areas. And even if you got well, only one wrong. Well, according to James chapter 2, as we saw last week, if you keep the entire law but you offend in one area, you're still guilty. If I decide to go speeding out of here tonight and I get a ticket for speeding, you know what that ticket says? This person, Corey J.R. Howell, has broken the law. But I didn't kill anybody. I broke the law. I didn't, I didn't knock over a 7-Eleven and rob the cashier blind with everything he had. Yeah, but I still broke the law. It's the same thing in God's book. It's the same thing in God's economy. Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified. Here's a verse we haven't looked at yet. 1 Timothy 1, verses 9 and 10. He says the exact same thing. He's knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man. Ten Commandments up in, in courtrooms and in the Supreme Court is not because, oh, look at us, an ideal for us to strive towards. That's not why it's there. It's not made for a righteous man, but for the who? Lawless. And for the disobedient. And for the ungodly. And for the sinners. For unholy. And profane. For murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, and for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men stealers, for liars, for perjured persons. And if there be any other thing, just in case you didn't cover it with that list, that is contrary to sound doctrine. That's what the law is for. So the point of you thinking that you can get to heaven by being a good person, that's not the point of it. Because, if you were paying attention this past Sunday as Pastor Aaron was preaching, if hypothetically God had 500 million good works as what you needed to hit in order to get into heaven, and you fell short at, what, one less? I don't even remember the number I just gave you guys. You're guilty. If that was the way to get to heaven. It doesn't matter. That's not what doing good works is for. You doing all this good to try to earn favor with God? If anything, it's just to get you to see, I can't keep doing this. Because eventually, you know what you'll find? People drive you insane. How can I possibly love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and my neighbor as myself? And Christ says that those are the two greatest commandments. You actually look back at that passage when Christ says that and when he's talking with the lawyer. You know what the very next verse says? The lawyer willing to justify himself. He's like, ah, I've done that since I was a kid. All right. Give everything you have away. Sell it to the poor. Mm -hmm. oh. All right. Nah, good talking to you, Christ. It's not going to save you. We come across this word justified, and I have it on your study sheet there. Look at the bullet point. Here's the definition of it, because it's, it's a word we use. I'm sure it's a word you guys use. But again, there's just something looking at definitions that help you see a different side of things. Justified means to prove or to show to be just. 
It means innocent. It means holy. It means clean. Hmm. Free from all guiltiness. Now stop here. We just saw by the deeds of the law in verse 20, no flesh. That means no one. No, not one. Not the goodest person in the world. And then the gooder one that's gooder than him that's even goodest can do it. No flesh. No, not one. And let God be true and every man a liar, including me. We just read that. No flesh shall be made clean, shall be made holy, shall be free from all guiltiness, shall be able to be proven as just. No one can do that by being good. Problem. Because 1 Peter 1.16, be ye holy as I am holy, is still the requirement. It's still the ticket into heaven. Big problem. So we come here to the conclusion of the first half of this chapter, or I guess the first two-thirds of this chapter. We're rounding third, heading home. Because this is a football analogy or a baseball analogy. Make up your mind, Corey. Point one, we saw judgment is coming for the unrighteousness of the whole world. Now, for the first time in two weeks, we're taking a turn. Because there's good news on the horizon. In point two, we see... Jesus Christ came to give His righteousness for the whole world. That's the difference. That's how this chapter is split. The first two-thirds are about judgment coming for the unrighteousness of the whole world. And now it's Jesus Christ came to give His righteousness for the whole world. Look at verse 21. But now... Forget about the past. Forget about the sins you've been through. Forget about it. All that matters is right here and now in this room where you sit listening to God's Word and let God be true and every man a liar. But now, the righteousness of God without the law is manifested or revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Letter A on your outline. Forget the past. God's righteousness is revealed to you now. What will you do with it? I don't know what I should do with it. We'll keep listening. Point one, we saw that God's righteousness is without works, but the law, it reveals Christ. Look at Acts 28-23 up here on the screen. This is Paul. It says that when they had appointed him, Paul a day, there came many to him into his lodging, to whom he expounded and testified the kingdom of God. You study that phrase throughout all the Bible. It has to do with the spiritual kingdom of God ruling and reigning from within your heart. He's testifying and expounding upon that. And look what he says. Persuading them concerning Jesus, both out of the law of Moses and out of the where? Prophets, fist bump for y'all, from morning till evening. Why did he do that? Because at this point in history, Paul didn't have the New Testament. He didn't write a vast majority of it yet. So all he had was the Old Testament. The Law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, and all of the prophets. That's the Old Testament summed up in a nutshell. All throughout, we've been over this, all throughout you see Christ is revealed. Look at verse 22. Even the righteousness of God, which is by what? Faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that what? All right, two people saw verse 22. Let's try this again. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that... For there is no difference. Verse 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You see in point two on your outline, God's righteousness is revealed to all the world. It is unto all. We just saw that. But it is only upon those who believe by faith. God's righteousness, 
His righteousness, Him being right, it's revealed to all. We saw that in chapter 1. It is revealed to all the world internally. We saw that last week in chapter 2. But the conscience bearing witness of the law written on our, on our hearts, knowing right from wrong. But now we see it here in Jesus Christ. You see, point two, God's righteousness is revealed unto the world, but it is only upon those who believe by faith. Up here on the screen, all of sin, Ecclesiastes 7.20. We just read verse 3.23, a verse that many of you guys have probably memorized. Here's another verse you can add to that. Put this down in your Bible. Put this down as a cross-reference. There is not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. Doesn't matter how much good you do. On your best day, you're still a sinner. Galatians 3.22. But the Scripture, let God be true and every man a what? The Scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. It is unto all. But you have to do something with the righteousness of God. We still haven't gotten through to the gist of it yet. That's what the next two beautiful verses are all about. Letter B, at this time, what is your declaration of faith? Do you have one? If I asked you to come up here and share what your declaration of faith is, your declaration of dependence, what would it be? All right, let's see. Ah, I'm just kidding. No, letter A. Or sorry, that was letter B. Number one. The glorious gospel made possible by the blood. Look at verse 24. Being justified freely. Now we know what that phrase justified means, right? We just talked about it. It means to be made clean. It means to be made holy. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Man, is that a mouthful? Man, am I glad I broke this down on the study sheet for you guys. Up here, the glorious gospel by His blood. First off, again, we saw justified. But just because I put a definition down doesn't mean we actually fully get it. So again, Isaiah 53, 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord, that's not the right passage whatsoever. Isaiah 53, 11. I'm going to turn there and read it. Just listen. Isaiah 53, 11. He, this is talking about Christ. By the way, I've said this before in a couple other cross-references, but you guys know that the book of Isaiah, these verses, written 700 years before Christ was even born. Funny. The Lord hath laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Even back then, God knew that He was going to be sending His capital P prophet, His messenger, His Son, here on the planet to forever deal with sin. Here's what verse 11 says. He, Christ, shall see of the travail of his soul, our soul, and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant, this is God speaking about Christ, shall my righteous servant justify many. Why? Because he shall bear their iniquities. That's what the verse should have been up there. 1 Corinthians 6.11 And such were some of you we gone our own way. Maybe that's why it's up there. Such were some of you. You were going your own way. You weren't understanding. You were unrighteous, unreasonable. But ye are washed, justified. Ye are sanctified. Ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's what justified means. That's how it's used throughout the Bible. Top of your next page on your study sheet. He also used the word freely. We're justified freely. That word means voluntarily. Again, I know you know this, but think about it in the context of what we're talking about tonight. The glorious gospel by His blood, freely. That's funny. First time you see that word show up, Genesis 2.16. And the Lord God commanded the man. Who's the man here? 
Adam, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. You know what's interesting? You go all the way to the final book and chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, and you find that that word freely is still used when it pertains to coming to the Lord to be clean, to be made pure, to be holy. God says you can freely take of that fruit. You can freely partake. Paul says here in Romans 3 that God justified us freely. Galatians 5.1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. So God, when He justified us, He did it freely of His own will, and He made you and I free as a result of that. But He doesn't stop there. He uses another word that needs to find. Grace. We are justified freely by His grace. That word means favorable. Did you know that? It literally means gift. Who can quote for me Ephesians 2, 8, and 9? Everyone should have it memorized. Close. Wait. For by, for by grace are you saved through faith, faith for you to get to God. Alright. Good thing I have a PowerPoint. <laughs> hey. That's my declaration of faith. That's my declaration of dependence. That's why everyone should have this memorized if it's yours. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Boy, Corey, you're really just beating this dead horse to death again. Yeah, because that's what Paul did. Because you realize that even though we have said it again and again, and some of you might be ticked off at me because I keep going over it again and again, do you realize that there are still people on this earth who don't want to part with their sin? They don't want to part. They can't grasp the fact that salvation is a gift given freely. They think that they need to do something, and they can't get it through their minds. They can't understand that He already did it for them freely. He made them clean and pure and holy. He did that for you freely. You're saved by that. John 1.12 But as many as received Him received that gift. Here's a very great gift that I'm going to make up with Caleb for. I got this for you. It means a lot. Here. When does this gift become yours? When I take it. When he receives the gift that I gave for him. Okay, I need to give that back to Andy now. But it was a gift. That's a good point. You have it. He doesn't need it anyways. It's only a gift when you receive him. And then you'll become a son of God. But he doesn't just stop there. He uses another word. Look at verse 24 again. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Oh, please look at your outline very, very closely. You've probably said that word before. You probably played a game with that word in the title before. But you probably have never looked at this definition. And I hope you don't the same again. Redemption means a repurchase of captured goods or prisoners. It is the act of procuring the deliverance of persons from the possession and power of captors by the payment of an equivalent. So Caleb's got my shaker right now. It was a gift, so maybe this analogy is not going to work. Do you guys think about that? That's the very definition of the word ransom, which is a, ver that is a word that is also used in the Bible to talk about what happened in order for you to be made justified. You are the captive good. You are the prisoner. And God 
procured your deliverance by making a payment for an equal. I really don't think that's still as grasped and settled into your brains just yet. Do you guys realize that when Jesus Christ bled on the cross, that it wasn't just for your sins, but it was for the sins of the whole world? What equal could there possibly be? What equal could there possibly be to procure that back? The blood of God Himself. That is what happened to make you clean and holy and pure. But He doesn't just stop there. Look at verse 25. Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation. What the heck is that? Good thing I put on the outline. It is the act of appeasing wrath and gaining the favor of the offended person. Oh, but before I go there, we need to do these verses real quick on redemption. Ephesians 1.7, In whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace in whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Colossians 1.14 1 Peter 1.18-19 Oh, this is a good one. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. No amount of things you give to your church, no amount of works, no. But with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Propitiation. Again, that word means the act of appeasing wrath and gaining the favor of the offended person. Why is that so tiny? And He is the propitiation for our sin. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I already mentioned that verse. 1 John 4.10 says, Here in His love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us. Guys, knock it off. Bring it in. Bring it in. We don't want to miss this. Do you realize that Jesus Christ suffered and took upon Himself the wrath of His own Father for you? Do you realize that? And He did this as an act of love. Not that we loved Him, but He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. He appeased the wrath of Almighty God. So in summary, here on your outline, what does this all mean? I put it together in this sentence to help you understand. Your innocence comes by faith in the blood of Christ, voluntarily given as a substitutionary payment for your sins to appease a holy and righteous God. Have you ever looked at it like that before? Those of you who have made a profession of faith, but continue to struggle with the same sin, year after year, continue to struggle with the same camp commitment, time and time again, continue to doubt if you're really saved, Maybe it's because you never thought about it in these terms before. Maybe it's because you did just pray a prayer because one of your pastors or your camp speaker or your discipler told you to pray this. Instead of understanding fully what actually happened in order for you to be made holy and pure and clean. You were justified because of the voluntarily given substitutionary payment of Christ's blood on your behalf before you were even born. That is huge. And if you've never thought about it in that way, maybe your friends at school have never heard of it that way either. And so now you have something you can take with them tomorrow and share with them tomorrow about how much God loves them and was willing to have the wrath of Almighty God be poured out upon Himself when He went to the cross for you. Man. We're just going to turn to this one place. Hold your place here. Turn to Hebrews chapter 9. you got to see this.
If what I put on the outline didn't do that justice, I'm hoping that these passages will because, you know, let God be true and every man a liar. Look at verse 11. But Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. So right here, when he says the word tabernacle, those of you guys who have been with us for a while, this should jolt you back to the Old Testament, to the Old Testament tabernacle which is where the priests for Israel, they took care of the sins of the entire nation, where they took care of the sins of individuals. They had this temporary spot where they had the Ark of God, which is where God dwelt, and it was where the sacrifices of sins were dwelt with. Paul is making a comparison here between that and what Christ did on the cross. Because, in verse 12, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for who? Us. Just as in the Old Testament, when a priest would take the blood of the sacrificial lamb, and he would go into the holy place, and he would sprinkle it onto the, the mercy seat, it was called. Jesus Christ did that for us. The spot that only a pure person was supposed to go into. For if the blood, verse 13, of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctify it to the purifying of flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, how much shall that purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Because you see, all of the blood of the bulls and the goats and the lambs for all of the Old Testament, as much as it satisfied God's appeasement, as much as it satisfied God's wrath, then at that time, they still had to do it again the next day and the next year after that. It was never permanent. It could only be by a perfect and holy and righteous God that could have done that to make us justified. And for this cause, verse 15, he is the mediator or the go-between between God and men. He's the mediator of the New Testament that by means of death, we just talked about this this past Sunday, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Jesus Christ went into the Holy of Holies by offering Himself as a sacrifice on the cross, something that no man can do, something that you cannot do with your filthiness of your sins, and me too. That's why it could only be through His blood. Turn back to Romans chapter 3. We'll tie this up. Verse 26. To declare, I say, at this time, His righteousness. What are you going to declare at this time? Your own righteousness or His that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. You can't boast because you didn't do anything to make yourself clean. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude, thank you Paul, now I don't have to repeat it anymore, that a man is justified by faith with out the deeds of the law. Point two on your outline. You are only made righteous by faith alone without good works. Galatians 2.16, Paul again writes, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ. And not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall, how many? No flesh, no, not one. And let God be true in every man a liar. Philippians 3, 9. And be found in Him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ. Notice how it doesn't say faith in Christ. 
You might want to mark that down because he even said it again in verse... Oh, where is it at? There's another verse we just read in here. You know what? Reread all of chapter 3. You'll find it. But here he says the faith of Christ, not faith in Christ. There's a difference. More on that in three weeks' time. Where am I at? Which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Again, it's not your own. It's His. Titus 3, 5, and 7. Again, a lot of verses tonight, but you guys need to see this. I don't want there to be any shadow of a doubt. If you're in here and you still think that it is by your good works and not from surrendering to Christ, not from understanding what He requires in order for you to be holy, then look at this. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by His grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. More on that next week. In verse 29, to finish up your study sheet here, point three, yes. Finally, some good news. We've seen a lot of no's, nuns, and nots. Now let's look at verse 29. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? What's the answer? Yes. yes. Of the Gentiles also, seeing it as one God, which shall justify the circumcision by faith and circumcision, uncircumcision through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. <coughs> Yay. We establish the law. In other words, the law lets us know, man, I'm unrighteous. We just proved that point. We need the law. You should incorporate the law when you share your faith in Christ with others. To go back, I'll close up right here. The definition of justified. Look at it again. To prove or show to be just. Can you show it? Do people know you're a Christian? Not because you tell them you go to church. Do they know it without you having to even say a word? Is there any shadow of a doubt that your sins have been washed away, that you've actually been made clean? Does your life reflect that you've been born again, that you have received that free gift of God, who again was a substitute to appease the wrath of the Father? and who purchased you back with His own blood. Is there any shadow of a doubt in your mind that you came to that point where you received that free gift? Will you bow your heads? If that's you, the Bible makes it very clear. We just saw it tonight. Again, it was laborious. We saw a lot of verses but they needed to be shown. You needed to see it so that you didn't just believe it was my words because let God be true and every man a liar. But that also means you. Have you been living a lie? Have you been trusting in your good works? Have you been trusting on a prayer? <laughs> Got news for you. That is a work of your own. Have your sins been cleansed by the blood? If not... You can just say a simple prayer of faith from your seat. Lord, I clearly see and know that I'm a sinner, and I believe that Jesus Christ was my substitute on the cross. He died and rose again, and I'm trusting in you to justify me. You pray a simple prayer of faith like that, and that is how you will be justified. That is salvation. Is there anybody here? They're like, you know what? I need to pray a prayer like that because I need to believe and trust Christ as my Savior. Is there anybody in here? Can you raise your hand? All right. Well, hopefully everyone here, they know exactly where they're going to go when they take their last breath, if it is tonight, if it's tomorrow. We don't know what a day will bring. But if you're unsure, talk with somebody tonight. 
We're here for you. Your friends are here for you. Talk with somebody. Do not lay your head on your pillow before doing business with God. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you very much for tonight. Thank you for your word, making it abundantly clear. Because you know what? We are stubborn people. There are people who still are willing to justify themselves, just like that rich man in the Gospels. We need to know that it is only by the blood. What can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And we thank you for that blood tonight. In your name, amen. 